Good afternoon and welcome to another Banner Lecture here in the Robbins Family Forum at the VHS. I'm Nelson Langford, Vice President for Programs. Um, I'm substituting again for our President, Paul Levengood. He certainly would be here today, except he's off for taking his kids for a short uh, spring break vacation. Uh, as Paul always does, I'd like to thank the Times-Dispatch for their sponsorship, helping make these lectures possible. Dr. Eugene Trani is really, without any question, one of the most influential Richmonders of our times. He served as president of Virginia Commonwealth University from 1990 to 2009. During his 19-year tenure, he led the school through a remarkable transformation and built it, in fact, into a major urban institution of higher, edu higher education and the largest university in Virginia. Much of downtown Richmond looks the way it does today because of Gene Trani. It was his leadership that led to the revitalization of downtown because of a creative expansion of VCU. And we have him to thank not just for VCU, but for uh, the modern city of Richmond. You may not know, however, that Dr. Trani is also a historian. He's written extensively on higher education, diplomatic history, and U.S.-Soviet relations. And it's his work today as a historian that brings him uh, to the VHS. During the last century, United States relations with Russia and China went through tumultuous changes. In a new appraisal, Dr. Trani shows where American images of Russia and China originated, how they evolved, and how they uh, often helped to sustain foreign policies that generally were more negative towards Russia and more positive towards China. This wide-ranging new book draws on memoirs, archives, and interviews to show how influential individuals shape perceptions and policies based on what they saw or thought they saw in those two countries. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Eugene Trani, who will speak to us about distant mirrors, Americans and their relations with Russia and China in the 20th century. Thank you, Nelson. I'm very pleased to be here uh, to talk about uh, this book. Uh, Distorted Mirrors, Americans and Their Relations with Russia and China in the 20th Century. Uh, this is the second book of a trilogy. Um, the first book that I did with my graduate school compatriot and longtime friend Donald Davis was entitled The First Cold War, The Legacy of Woodrow Wilson in U.S.-Soviet Relations. And that came out in 2002. It was published in English by the University of Missouri Press. It was published in Russia by Olma Press in Moscow. Uh, it was published in Chinese by the Peking University Press uh, in Beijing. Interesting enough, they still call it Peking University. And they will not change that, no matter what the government is. Uh, this book, obviously, uh, was published last year in May uh, by the University of Missouri Press. It was published in Russian uh, by Vagrius Publisher. Colors, uh, the covers are really interesting. The, 
playing around with the distortion in a number of different languages. Uh, it was published in Spanish uh, by the University of Cordova Press, another interesting take on distortion, uh, and will be published uh, in Chinese by the Peking University Press probably by July. I'm going there uh, in May. I don't think it will be quite ready, uh, but it's been translated and it is being printed right now. Uh, so these are the first two volumes. The third volume is a biography of a very famous New York Times journalist editor by the name of Harrison Salisbury. Uh, Salisbury first went uh, to Russia in 1944-45 and then was the New York Times uh, bureau chief in Moscow from 1949 uh, to 1954 where Stalin seriously considered a plot to assassinate him. His coverage caused a lot of pain to a lot of people. Uh, he then came back to the United States uh, in 1954, immediately wrote a series of articles on the death of Stalin and the aftermath for which he won his first Pulitzer Prize. Uh, in 1957, uh, he went uh, to Yugoslavia and wrote a series of articles about uh, Yugoslavia being expelled uh, from the uh, Soviet orbit and their efforts to get rid of Tito won his second Pulitzer Prize. Um, Salisbury then went to, uh, got into North Vietnam in late 1966 and 1967 uh, and wrote 23 articles that blew the socks off the uh, Johnson White House uh, because he exposed the bombing uh, in North Vietnam uh, and showed quite conclusively that it was not just targeting military targets. There was more than a little incidental damage, casualties, deaths, uh, uh, and was recommended by the Pulitzer Prize Committee for a third Pulitzer Prize when an advisory committee over, uh, chaired by Grayson Kirk, the president of Columbia University, on a split vote overturned that recommendation. That was part of a second assassination plot on Salisbury's uh, career, this time, by the Johnson White House. So this will be the third volume of this trilogy. We're about half done now. We have five of ten chapters done. Uh, but they all have a constant theme. American-Russian relations, uh, American-Russian-Chinese relations, because Salisbury, in addition to being a longtime correspondent in Moscow, spent the last 20 years of his life dealing with China. A very interesting question is, how does one get involved in this? Where do the ideas start? Um, and I want to be very direct and tell you where this started. I've had a, long, a lifelong interest in Russia. Uh, my first book, Doctoral Dissertation, eventually published by the University of Kentucky Press, uh, uh, was on Theodore Roosevelt's mediation of the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, I received the degree at... Uh, Indiana University in 1966. Uh, my eldest child, my daughter, both, I'm fortunate to have not only uh, both of my children and their spouses, but all five grandchildren living in Richmond, which is very unusual in modern-day America. Uh, but my eldest daughter has the Russian 
middle name of Nadezhda, which is the Russian word for hope. So I've been interested in this for a very long period of time. But I really got interested in American perceptions of Russia during four months in 1981, where I, while I served as Fulbright lecturer in American history at Moscow State University, I arrived on February the 1st and was there for February, March, uh, April, and May and came back uh, to my administrative position. I was then the vice chancellor for academic affairs at the University of Missouri, Kansas City uh, uh, in uh, June of 1981. And it was a profound experience for me, probably the most profound academic experience I'd ever had. Uh, uh, my wife and both children came and visited me, but I was there by myself for the majority of the time uh, because we had two high school students uh, uh, who could not give up their sophomore and junior years of high school and go spend a semester in Moscow. But what struck me there was the discussions with people all over the Soviet Union, and I traveled widely in the Soviet Union. In fact, I got expelled from Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. Uh, I went to give a couple of lectures uh, there, three lectures. I gave one, um, and in response to a question of a student who asked me about the recent Soviet sending of troops uh, to Afghanistan, and I said, mark my words, that will turn out to be the Soviet Union's Vietnam. My host did not like that. It turned out to be true, uh, and they packed me up and sent me back to Moscow. So I have been expelled from Grozny when the city of Grozny actually existed. There's not much of it that uh, exists in uh, modern-day Russia. Um, but what struck me was the forever conversations of the Russians. Why can't we get along? Why do Americans hate Russia and the Russians so much? Um, we were allies in the Second World War. They would inevitably say, over vodka. Uh, and a couple vodkas later on, they would say again, why do you hate us so much? And that was a real point of interest for me, uh, to begin this thought of why do Americans uh, hate Russia? and the Russians, and how did these views develop? I had the good fortune then to begin, and I've been to Russia now probably 25 times over the years. Uh, was there uh, most recently when the Russian translation uh, was issued last September, uh, and uh, go back on a regular basis. Um, then in 1984, I first started to visit China. And I was there when President Reagan was in China. I was uh, an AMPART lecture, an American participant lecture, uh, uh, sponsored by the United States uh, Information Agency. Uh, and I visited Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan, Harbin, uh, Hanzhou, a number of different cities. And I was struck with the exact opposite feeling. Chinese really liked Americans, and Americans really liked Chinese. So I began to think about this idea. Why is it that Americans uh, like the Chinese so much? And why is it that Americans hate the Russians so much? Uh, in the book, there is this article that I did for the Kansas City Star 
on July 8, 1984, uh, under the title, China the Friend and Russia the Foe, Different Perceptions Can't Help But Affect the Shape of Foreign Policy. And I want to read it to you. A colleague of mine who has just ended a teaching assignment in the Soviet Union sent me a postcard in which he said all he could think of as he left Moscow was Martin Luther King's famous line, free at last, free at last. (laughs) That observation and my own recent experiences in both Russia and China called to mind again the vastly different perceptions among Americans of the two largest communist nations in the world. This was written in 1984 the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic and the People's Republic of China. And remember, only one of them is still a communist country, the one we love, not the one we hate. When Americans visit Russia, they usually sense deep suspicion on the parts of their host, Russian waiters, clerks, custom officials, service people, bureaucrats, and government officials do make trips to the Soviet Union memorable, but most frequently it is not a positive sense. American visitors to the Soviet Union are put off by the number of uniformed personnel, both policy and military, whom they see. In contrast, Americans who visit China usually comment on the great warmth and hospitality with which they are received. Chinese hosts and service people have a knack for making visitors feel truly welcome. Many Americans have left the Soviet Union with a great sense of relief. In fact, at times, spontaneous cheers erupt as planes leave the tarmac at the Moscow or Leningrad airport, and that's happened to me numerous times over the years. By comparison, departures from China are sad, and often Americans leave with the feelings that new friendships will last many years. The point is that the lifestyle and traditions cause a great many travelers to feel positive and optimistic about China, and negative and suspicious and pessimistic about the Soviet Union. Neither view, of course, is completely accurate. Americans tend to overemphasize problems with the Soviet Union and in Soviet-American relations and underemphasize potential problems in China and in Chinese-American relations. Um, one, you've got to ask, why is that the case? Because you think about your own views. My father bought his first house in the Philadelphia area in, 19, in the 1940s, and a major factor of why he purchased that house was a cellar for the bomb shelter when the Soviets nuked this suburb of Philadelphia, which I don't believe ever became a target for the <laughs> Soviet Union. But by God, we bought that house with that in mind. So you've got to ask why do we look favorably on China and unfavorably on Russia? Uh, And it's a very complicated topic, uh, and that's what the book is about. But I'll just mention one thing that I write about in this uh, article uh, from 1984. The nature of the development of Chinese and Russian studies in American universities has also contributed to the different perceptions. Academic programs to study Chinese culture were established in the main by Americans whose pleasant experiences in China condition them to render sympathetic interpretations. Russian studies, on the other hand, were founded and have long been dominated by a cadre of emigres critical of developments in the Soviet Union. For many years, the major professor 
of Chinese history at Harvard University was John K. Fairbanks, a scholar who was considered the dean of Chinese studies in the United States. He was known for his sympathy with China and for his capacity for reporting events from a Chinese perspective. At the same time, Harvard's professor of Russian history was Michael Karpovich, an emigrate who served in the Russian embassy uh, of the last non-Bolshevik Russian government. And Mr. Karpovich's anti-Bolshevik convictions were reflected in his interpretations of Russian life and history. So you need to think about why have we developed these mental images. And that is, in fact, what I decided to do in 1984 after I returned from my first trip uh, uh, to China, uh, having been to the Soviet Union a couple of times and now having returned many, many times uh, finally, in, 19, uh, in the year 2009, uh, this book is finished. What does the book do? The book lays out the American images that have developed over the years uh, of both Russia and China and shows that they're not politically motivated. It has n- almost nothing to do with the governments. Uh, our negative images of Russia and positive image of China uh, go back to the year 1891, a seminal year, because there were two major accounts that were written in 1891. Interestingly enough, both published by the same publisher, Century Publisher. And one of them was by George Kennan, the elder, uh, the person we refer to as Siberian George Kennan, and his books were on Siberia and the exile system. If you're bad, I'm going to send you to Siberia. You don't have positive impressions of what's going to happen there. Kennan is the one who burnt that in American images, that Russia was a bankrupt country long before the Bolsheviks came, of cruelty, of corruption, uh, and of course what he wanted immediately was the Romanov emperors replaced, which eventually came in 1917. Uh, He had a profound effect on American views of Russia in the period from uh, 1890s to well after the First World War. That very same year that uh, Kennan wrote Siberia and the Exile System, W.W. Rockhill, who some of you may remember, was the author of the Open Door Notes issued by the uh, Theodore Roosevelt administration to preserve the territorial integrity of China. He wrote a book called The Land of the Lamas, which was a travel log about this fascinating country, China, and why Americans should be so infatuated with this country. And that began the very positive images uh, that we have of China. The book is divided into uh, two distinct parts, covering Russia and covering China. There are seven chapters uh, on each side after dealing with both uh, 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 Kennan and Rockhill. We cover the emigres and the scholarship, uh, looking at uh, Sam Harper from the University of Chicago. We then cover a listening post for the Soviet Union, that the American government set up in Riga, uh, uh, Latvia, 
where American experts were trained, George Kennan, Chip Poland, all of these people spent time at Riga, uh, and they were known as the boys from Riga because they all had a very negative interpretation of the Soviet Union. And many of them peopled uh, the ambassadorship to uh, uh, the Soviet Union over a period of time, uh, as well as high uh, governmental positions. We cover journalists. Uh, the journalist we cover uh, at length is uh, Eugene Lyons in terms of his views of Russia. And Eugene Lyons grew up as a socialist in the United States. And the greatest assignment he ever wanted was to go to Moscow. And he grew up, and then when he got there, he hated Russia every minute he was there. Uh, and for years uh, dominated our coverage of Russia. Uh, we talk about the, the Second World War where there was cooperation between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. We were, in fact, allies. And then we have two chapters on major American diplomats. Uh, uh, George Kennan, the diplomat, the famous Mr. X from his foreign affairs article, uh, and the author of The Policy to Contain the Soviet Union, and Paul Nitze, uh, the gray eminence who took uh, Kennan's ideas and seared them into American foreign policy. Uh, the Chinese side, we begin with missionary diplomacy, and there has been a constant theme of missionaries going to China uh, and spreading Christianity, uh, which never got spread much in China, but we always believed it was just around the corner. Uh, and in fact, the missionaries uh, had profound impact on uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, both missionaries that he went to Princeton with. He studied uh, under his direction at Princeton, uh, but they really had an important uh, pack, uh, impact on uh, Wilson. Uh, John Dewey went to, the philosopher went to China, and really had profound observations on China in the period immediately after the First World War. Uh, the American journalist that we have studied about China is Edgar Snow, who wrote a very famous book, called Red Star Over China, uh, sympathetic uh, to Mao uh, and the communists, uh, but again, fulfilling these images of China as a romantic, inscrutable land, the land of the future. Um, we write about Pearl Buck, uh, who wrote the book The Good Earth uh, and won the Nobel Prize for Literature for that book. And she, again, was very important in building this positive image uh, of um, uh, China in the minds of America. Then we write about uh, the relationship uh, between FDR and Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, we write about Henry Luce's man, Time's man, uh, in Chongqing, uh, Teddy White, who you may remember wrote all the books on the making of the presidents. Well, he was a fluent in Chinese... Chinese expert, uh, and again, while in love with China, wound up hating Chiang Kai-shek and the corruption and everything he stood for. Uh, and then uh, we talk about how it was Nixon and Kissinger who led us out of our wilderness, 1949 to 1972, uh, the period of bad relations, and how was it that that could happen uh, with uh, our uh, relationships with China, but it has never happened with our relationships uh, with Russia. Um, the relationship with Russia has been tortured uh, and clearly was impacted by a major 
uh, arms race uh, in the post-World War II period. There is no question about that. Uh, it had a great power aspect that American relations with China have not had yet, but are about to have. And it's not going to be over nuclear weapons, it's going to be over economic weapons. And who's going to control the world? Uh, and uh, Professor Davis and I do not believe uh, that America is well suited to understand the nature uh, of the Chinese government and what China is trying to do in the world today uh, and don't know how much we are uh, uh, going to be prepared to deal with the new and emerging China. Uh, and it is a very powerful uh, country and a really problematic relationship that we have. So when you think about American-Russian relations, even today, in the year uh, 2010, what do you think about? You think about strategic arms, and we now have an extension of the Strategic Arms Treaty uh, that will be placed before our Congress in the relatively near future, uh, and that's a good thing for everybody. But we think about nuclear weapons. Uh, we think about uh, the defense system that was proposed by the Bush administration to put missiles in Poland and the Czech Republic. Uh, we think about Russia controlling its allies, North Korea, uh, and uh, uh, Iran. Uh, and we think about the Russian exploitation of Georgia in particular. And remember what an issue Georgia was um, in the last presidential election. Now, interestingly enough, we don't talk much about those kind of strategic relations with, with China. We don't talk about China's allies, North Korea uh, and Iran, uh, to whom they are selling things. We do not talk about Tibet. And if you compare just the coverage of Georgia and Tibet, Tibet is a lot more significant. Uh, and the Chinese are just snuffing out Tibet for all practical purposes, uh, and the culture of Tibet. Uh, but that doesn't concern us. Uh, we talk about economics with China. We talk about Walmart's foreign policy, uh, our relationship with China. Uh, those are the sense uh, of our relationships uh, with China. So what Dr. Davis and I are preaching is a rational policy to both countries. Uh, we should have a rational policy uh, to both countries. Uh, we should understand Russia better. We should understand China better. Because if we don't, this is what's going to happen. And this is our big concern. This is a cartoon that appeared with an op-ed piece that I did in the International Herald Tribune. And I think it was 2006. And it was a really profound op-ed piece. The cartoon was a lot better. It was done by a Frenchman living in Phuket in Thailand. And our concern is we are going to drive Russia and China together. And if we drive, succeed in driving Russia and China together, and remember, China has the market and Russia has the natural resources, the oil, the gas, the minerals, um, we're going to have a heck of a hard time 
the period of the United States as the major superpower of the world will be over. So that is what our concern is. What we would like to see are a relationship dealing with both countries that treated them the same on similar issues. If we are going to hold the Russians to account in terms of dealing with places like Georgia, we ought to hold the Chinese to account for dealing with places like Tibet. Um, What we believe is we should not have a NATO-centered policy, but a European Union-centered policy in dealing with Russia. We believe Europe has to be has to integrate Russia into the European Union for all practical purposes. Uh, And that is something we should support because that will moderate the deep suspicion and sense of isolation uh, that the Russians have developed over the years. This Russia would emerge as the European Union's eastern pillar. It might encourage a process of democratization without the U.S. sermonizing Russia about a free press, human rights, and so forth. Uh, The book has a preface uh, by the former American ambassador to Russia, uh, Thomas Pickering, and one that appeared in the Russian edition uh, by one of my former students from the period of time that I was uh, teaching at Moscow University, Vasislav Nikonov. Slava Nikonov is one of the real experts on American-Russian relations. His English is as good as yours and mine. Uh, He grew up in English-speaking schools in Moscow, uh, and he has served in the Duma uh, and is very well-placed. He also happens to be the grandson of the former Soviet foreign minister, uh, Malotov. And what he writes in this preface, which I find to be particularly interesting, remarkably... He writes, Russia encounters problems with the way it is perceived only in the West, while China has similar problems in the East. Why is this? Nikonov continues, an interesting answer was suggested by a friend of mine, a Canadian diplomat who has lived in Moscow for more than 10 years. He believes that the main problems, main problem with the perception of Russians by Westerners, above all Anglo-Saxons, lies in the fact that the Russians are white. There would be no problem if they were green, pink, or some other color. In that case, the Westerners would say they are different, the way they talk about people from Asia, Africa, and other countries, where the political regimes may be really appalling. But the Russians look like Westerners and are expected to have likewise have the same reactions, habits, and faiths. Yet, Nikonov writes, Russians are different. And that is a very interesting observation. We presume that the Russians ought to be like us in terms of democracy. Well, they haven't had democracy for a thousand years. Uh, Our kind of democracy, uh, and there's no indication they're going to have it tomorrow. Uh, uh, Russia is not a strong person dictatorship from 1918 on. It goes back centuries upon centuries. Uh, Comparably, China, the only communist, major communist 
country left in the world, not Russia, uh, is a country that we need to understand much, much better. And we need to understand our commercial relationships, our high-tech relationships, our finance, our security, our energy relationships. So what we are preaching for is a relationship that would uh, treat both countries equally. And it doesn't seem to be occurring. At the conclusion of the book, we cite um, two Council on Foreign Relations reports um, that have come out in recent years. Uh, The Council on Foreign Relations uh, is what is generally considered to be uh, uh, the major um, public-private think tank on foreign policy in the world. There are 3,000 members of the Council on Foreign Relations. I happened to begin my administrative career at the University of Nebraska many years ago, and they were looking for a member from Nebraska, so I put my hand up, and lo and behold, I've been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations for 30 years now. They published two reports uh, in 1906 on Russia and 1907 on China. And I'm just going to read you the titles of the reports, and you can make your own conclusions. The title of the report on Russia was Russia's Wrong Direction, What the United States Can and Should Do. The title on the report on China published a year later was U.S.-China Relations, An Affirmative Agenda, A Responsible Course. And this is the Council on Foreign Relations. Russia's Wrong Direction. Well, we need to get it right. Now, I do want to give you a footnote about a Richmond influence in terms of our uh, uh, making of our policy uh, towards Russia and China. Um, Walter Spencer Robertson, who was born in 1893, died in 1970, served FDR, Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower on their China policy. He was Secretary, Assistant Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs from 1953 to 1959. Two of his children live in Richmond, Walter S. Robinson, Jr. and Mrs. Hobart Kitty Claiborne. Uh, and Kitty has sent me a lot of material about her father, a very interesting man, who was Chargé d'Affaires in Chungking, the wartime capital of the Nationalist government, uh, who worked with Sigmund Rhee to uh, get the Korean armistice. Now, he was opposed to recognizing Red China. He died in 1970. Two years later, Nixon and Kissinger went to China. And we very quickly uh, recognized China and moved our relationship, uh, formal relationship, as well as the UN headquarters uh, for China from Taiwan to uh, Beijing. I actually believe uh, that Walter Robinson, had he been alive at that point, would have approved of it because the China card uh, uh, became very pivotal in what eventually became the decline of the Soviet Union. Uh, And I think he would have supported that. Uh, But he had a great love for the Chinese people uh, and is sort of typical uh, of what happened. Uh, in that period of time. 
So what I urge you to do is to think about how and when your views of Russia develop, what they are now, and what your views of our China. I'd be pleased to stop and take any questions you might have, but that's what I'm afraid of. Thank you very much. I guess they're going to come around with a microphone, so you can speak into the microphone. Um, do you not think that most of our views of, as you say, negative toward Russia and more positive toward China were influenced by Russia's um, uh, actions at the end of World War II. Yes, they were our allies, but people were certainly surprised that then they did not leave uh, the countries in Europe and that their motives were to spread communism, whereas the Chinese don't talk about spreading communism. They just talk about keeping communism in their own countries, albeit in some of the border countries where they don't want refugees to come in, like North Korea. Okay. First of all, I think that our attitudes towards Russia and China dramatically pre-exist 1945. I think Woodrow Wilson was president at the creation of the Cold War. That's what the first book was about. Uh, and I think our views uh, towards Russia uh, have existed long before 1945. Certainly, the superpower rivalry between the United States uh, and the uh, Soviet Union uh, 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 did not help that relationship. And I am not an apologist for what Stalin and his successors did. Uh, clearly, uh, they took over portions of uh, uh, Europe that were not theirs, although some of them had been part of the Russian Empire, like Poland, uh, 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 for a long period of time. Uh, uh, and that did not exist uh, uh, in the same fashion that it existed with Russia in terms of China. I was at a conference in Miami about a year ago, uh, and it was uh, mayors, business leaders, and university presidents. And the mayor of Miami invited Latin American mayors, Latin American rectors of universities and business leaders. And they were there. There were maybe 20 of them there. And you know what they were talking about? not American, Latin American relations, American-Peruvian relations, American relations with Ecuador. They were talking about Chinese relationships. China is all over Latin America, in case you didn't notice it. It's all over Africa. And in effect, they're doing the same thing the Russians did. They're just not announcing it. They own much of the commerce uh, in countries all over the world. They're buying up natural resources like crazy. And you're not reading about that in American papers. Uh, American journalists are not covering it, but I can tell you Latin American mayors are talking about it. So, sure, the Russians and their activities in Eastern Europe uh, were a major part. A major part of that was also that we had a very healthy um, Polish-American community, Hungarian-American community, um, I, some of you are aware uh, that I had quintuple bypass surgery. I see Walter Lawrence there, and 
uh, MCV Hospital, the VCU Medical Center, did me very, very well. Uh, the surgeon. I was talking to him about this book. Uh, and I adore the surgeon. He's a great guy. Um, and he informed me that the last time he had anything to do with Russians, he was throwing Molotov cocktails at their tanks in Budapest in 1954. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Uh, and, uh, you know, a very healthy emigrate community has also had a lot to say about our view and our foreign policy. Remember, there, were, there have been Polish-Americans who have been national security advisor. Uh, to the United, uh, to the President of the United States, in in terms of Brzezinski, uh, so uh, I say yes. What they did in Eastern Europe certainly contributed to the problem, but the problem is much deeper than that. Other questions, Dr. Trani, I wonder <coughs> if you'd comment on a, on a couple of things that I think are related. One is I understand the native Russian population is declining. Yes, and then secondly. To what extent does immigration play a role in Russia and China? Oh, the emigres have been very important in our views. Uh, think of your Chinese Americans that you know. <coughs> they are largely apolitical. They do not take a stance on current events other than pride with what's happening in China, the Olympics, things like that. That is not the case <coughs> in terms of the emigres from the former Soviet Union, they do take a stance on a lot of issues. Uh, so clearly uh, that is the case. The Russian uh, health system is a disaster. VCU has one of the great experts on the Russian health system on its faculty, Judy Twig, uh, by name. Uh, and the death rates, uh, the life expectation are declining uh, in Russia. The population uh, is losing ground. It's declining. Uh, and... Uh, this is of enormous concern and should be uh, in terms of Russia, and that is obviously not the case in China whatsoever. But the emigres are another key issue in addition to the scholars in how your views have been created uh, of the Russia. And this is for generations. Other questions? <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, is the attitude of the United States uh, uh, different from the attitude of Britain, say, in 1800, of France in 1650, of India right now, towards um, Russia? Yeah. I think the attitude today in France, Germany, and England of Russia is different than it is in the United States. A uh, major target for German investment is, in fact, Russia right now. Uh, there are billions and billions of uh, uh, dollars, rubles, uh, euros that the Germans have invested all over. Uh, you get on a plane and you fly to Vladivostok out of Moscow. There'll be 10 German business uh, leaders on that plane, men and women, going out to Vladivostok, which is, by the way, further from Moscow than New York is from Moscow. Uh, uh, so... Uh, the very different attitudes. Now, uh, did the British have the same kind of suspicious attitudes towards India? I, you know, not my field. <coughs> uh, but clearly, there is a different perception in England, in France, and in Germany today 
of the developments in Russia than there is. I in mean, in reading literature, it seems that the people in France in 1700 or, or in any country in Europe viewed the Russians as different uh, and uh, viewed them as different. Yeah, and clearly uh, they are aware of those differences to a much greater extent, I believe, than Americans have been. I mean, we've just been brought up on this culture of uh, suspicion of Russia, and I think it's time we stopped it and, because they can help us. They can help us in energy. They can help us in weapons of mass destruction, largely we Soviet weapons that are causing a lot of the problems. Uh, they can help us in terrorism, uh, but we need a rational policy. And I'm bipartisan. I, I think the Clinton years were a disaster for American-Russian relations. Uh, Clinton advisors fo uh, fostered the economic wreckage uh, that led to a lot of the problems that Russia had. Uh, and if you want names, of, I can name some of the professors who uh, the Clinton administration sent over there. So I think it's not been Republican, it's not been... Uh, democratic, and I think it's time that we had a more rational policy towards both countries. Yes, ma'am. I wonder if you have had the experience, too, of talking in China with people about their own history. Yes. I know that when I went to China, I would ask somebody, you know, about the Taiping Rebellion or, you know, the Great Leap Forward or whatever, and they would say, I was never taught that, I don't know about that, etc. And they would just want to talk about, you know, modern progress, you know, current things. And I'm also wondering if the U.S. didn't get a lot more information from the intelligentsia, from the dissidents and so on, about Russia uh, and, you know, say Stalin and the purges than we did about Mao and, you know, all the people that were killed in the Cultural Revolution and so on? Uh, I think the information is available in the United States. Talk to Congressman Frank Wolf from Northern Virginia. He is really concerned about China. And he can tell you who are the religious prisoners in China, who are the bishops, uh, from a whole bunch of different religions that are imprisoned that nobody cares about. You know, we could actually name a whole bunch of political prisoners in Russia for a long period of time. We've not had the same kind of interest uh, in terms of uh, China whatsoever. Uh, and again, it goes back to this uh, um, affection, forgiving attitude we have towards China. Uh, when Secretary of State Clinton made her first visit to China. They asked her on the trip, the reporters, if she was going to bring up the issue of political prisoners. And she said, I'm not going to bring it up. And they said, why? For two reasons. The Chinese will not like it if I bring it up. And we know what their answer is going to be. This is the same Secretary of State who will hold a press conference at the drop of a hat when she arrives in Moscow and denounce the Russian government. And I'm just looking for rational, balanced treatment of both. And I don't see it. I have one more question. One more question. And first of all, let me say, I really appreciate your coming out on such a gorgeous day in <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. This is why we all live in Richmond, and I know you could be doing many other things, but I appreciate your coming out. Yes, sir. One more quick question. Some years ago, probably 15 now, 
We, VCU actually had a very effective relationship with the Soviet medical system. In fact, you know, there was a parade of Soviet physicians and others yeah. involved coming to VCU. Yeah. And even some medical, at least one medical student, I think. Yeah. Do we still have that relationship? Yes. Uh, uh, the relationship, f first of all, VCU has, at last count, uh, uh, 15 relationships, largely in the developing world. Uh, two with uh, China. Uh, with Fudan University in Shanghai. And interestingly enough, uh, Fudan University merged uh, into Fudan University was the uh, Shanghai Medical College. And it was hysterical to talk to the administrators of Fudan University as right after the merger had taken place about things like nomenclature and a whole bunch of other issues. But that's a different subject. Uh, and our second relationship with China is with the Beijing Foreign Studies University, uh, Beihua, uh, where... 400 graduates of that institution have worn the title ambassador. We have two relationships, ongoing relationships, with Russian universities, with, and they are two of the leading Russian universities, Moscow State University and St. Petersburg State University. Um, the very specific relationship I think you're talking about was an eight-year relationship between MCV Hospital and the General Hospital in Vladivostok. Vladivostok has the highest automobile fatality rate in the Soviet in Russia. Can anybody tell me why? They drink, that's for sure. But what else? Half the cars are left-hand steering wheel and right half the cars are from Japan. Right-hand steering wheel. And these people come up to these intersections and have had vodka and big fatality rate. Uh, and so we had an eight-year relationship funded by uh, USAID uh, on trauma treatment. That may be specifically what you're talking about. Uh, that is not active because that was just for a period of time, but our relationships with St. Petersburg University and Moscow University thrive uh, and with Fudan and Beijing Foreign Studies University. I really appreciate your coming out. Thank you very much.